I'm Dima Ballin, and this is The Rear Window. Secretary or something? I'm asking you to marry me, you little fool. Well, how do you like Mandela? Very beautiful, isn't it? And how do you get along with Mrs. Danvers? Well, I... I've never met anyone quite like her before. You see, she's bound to be insanely jealous at first. And she must resent you bitterly. But why should she? Don't you know? She simply adored Rebecca. I suppose she was the most beautiful creature I ever saw. I wonder if I did a very selfish thing in marrying you. How do you mean? I'm not much of a companion to you, am I? You thought I loved Rebecca? You thought that? I hated her. And of course, we're here to talk about Rebecca, and with me is David Kleiler and John Paul Wallet. Rebecca, of course, started life as a 20th century gothic romance novel by Daphne du Maurier. It was written in the style of the Bronte sisters and Anne Radcliffe. Yeah, even though it was a 20th century novel, it had a very 19th century kind of sensibility. It's a film that's just been released by Criterion in a pristine new restoration on Blu-ray. Uh, it looks absolutely amazing. And... Um, Right in the opening credits, David O. Selznick makes sure that we know that this is a David O. Selznick picture, which must have uh, rubbed Hitchcock the wrong way, even at that early stage, because he he was used to getting his own way in England. I wonder, yeah, I, I assume that in England, Hitchcock was probably pretty powerful as as a director. That's the why Selznick sna uh, snapped him up. And uh, clearly, it's a period of adjustment for Hitchcock not just working with somebody like Selson, but working, getting exposed to the Hollywood studio system. But back, back in the day, too, um, you know, the Frank Capra book, The Name Above the Title, and there's an exception for a director's name to be above the title. But we did know about Selznick and Goldwyn and people like that. And uh, so that uh, it was more of the period of time when, when long before the auteur here he got uh, hatched, the, you know, the producers were often the auteurs. Now, certainly in the case of Selznick. Well, even, even with some of the directors, like Wellman and um, Walsh, often were listed not as the director, but as the producer, since they, you know, they were um, hired by the studio to produce a film. Mm -hmm. And they directed it. But they often, you'll often see that, you know, it's a Raul Walsh movie. He's listed as the producer above the title, and he didn't even bother to put the, who the director was on the film. But um, in this case, this one's an interesting film for a couple of reasons. One is that you mentioned Gold, Sam Goldwyn and David O. Selznick, who were two major competing small studios. They were their own own companies. You know, you had the big companies hanging around, but but these two were like, the only reason why the studio existed was because of them. It was their name. Um, and Rebecca comes about partly because the previous year, Goldwyn had done Wuthering Heights, which is a gothic romance. Um, and that was directed by Wendell Wallman, who is very William good. William Wyler. At, uh, sorry, William <laughs> Wyler, who's 
even better yes, <laughs> at doing so. exactly that kind of a film. Um, on the other hand, across the, across the pond, Hitchcock had made Jamaica End, which is a gothic romance thriller based on a Daphne du Maurier book. So the logic, if, if uh, Selznick wanted to outdo his competitor, was to bring together all the things that could make a film better than Wuthering Heights. So hiring Hitchcock, contracting the du Maurier novel, and bringing all of this to the United States, to his studio, was an, seemed like an ideal thing. And it paid off because it got Best Picture as well as 11 other, uh, 10 other nominations that year. It paid off. Absolutely. Plus the fact that um, it was a repeat because they took from Wuthering Heights the lead actor. Yeah. So, so, and then I don't know why they didn't grab Merle Oberon, who I love watching. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, there was, Olivier wasn't the only uh, person under consideration. Ronald Coleman was for a while. But yeah, it, it's made to order for, for uh, Olivier, mm. and, and it works. And uh, I mean, I think in some ways, Rebecca, even though it's not as definitively a Hitchcock film as we often think of Hitchcock, it's got enough Hitchcock. It's got enough Selznick and enough Hitchcock, to, and it's a great hybrid uh, of that. Mm-hmm. And it comes out really well. It's a great piece of Hollywood filmmaking. Well, it also fits into the, the overall um, type of films that, that Hitchcock does in being, some people call it a, a gothic romance, but it was a gothic thriller. Unlike, unlike Wuthering Heights from 100 years earlier, which was a social drama, um, understanding classes and... and uh, problems of high society and all that. This was much more designed as a modern thriller, even though it set it was set in a gothic world. And God knows it's got class differences, which is part of the part of the uh, basically uh, that deals with the plot because she's certainly not of the world of Manderley uh, that uh, Laurence Olivier uh, grew up in, or from her, her the previous wife. So there is there are some awareness of class there certainly, but you're right in terms of secrets and withholding of evidence and things like that there are enough of the elements of a hitchcock film and knowing how the way he can he can um with his narrative suspend information mm-hmm. uh it's not exactly a thriller but it has a lot of elements of a thriller in it um in, in terms of certain structure and it also even though the book itself was a first person narrative hitchcock going back to uh even his silent films was playing around with uh, point of view work and first person narrative I mean, uh, 39 Steps, completely different kind of film. Uh, there's no shot that the central character, Robert Donat, is not precedent. Hmm. The whole film is sold from, shot from uh, his point of view. And Hitchcock will repeat that same device again in Rear Window. So the language of first-person narration uh, and the language of the moving camera to express subjectivity, uh, he already had that. So um, I can't think of an American film that that was that kind of even though there was a lot of really great cinema atmospheric cinematography before Rebecca, he brought a slight he brought an edge to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if I when that first if I saw the film when I was like two months old when it came out, uh, I would have been bowled over by it and say, mm-hmm. oh "My God, I've never seen anything <laughs> like this." So it was a good bl- a blending. I mean, it was a right project for Hitchcock to take on. I think for his American debut. Well, he didn't have any choice. He was given to him. To well, it was given to him. He was probably happily offered it because he had obviously already had a relationship with Du Maurier. 
Yes. With Jamaica Ann, which is, if you look at Jamaica Ann and then look at Rebecca, there are similarities that are Hitchcockian, or at least of the genre of films that were being made of gothic romance thrillers, that they're not that different, that he didn't, you know, it's not as pristine, you know, there's lots of things that the American studios added to Hitchcock's work, but he still had a lot of the elements already that are in yes. Rebecca. And uh, the project under his direction, I think, benefited because he he's the one who did it from, from Selznick's point of view. Uh, yeah. yeah, even though um, Hitchcock was not used to the kind of studio uh, mogul um, kind of thing. that, And um, one of the things I read was that Hitchcock, after this, because um, you, were just, you were just checked on uh, the editor of the film being a uh, Selznick employee. So Hitchcock developed his technique so he'd edit in camera ahead of time so that it couldn't be fooled around with that much after he was no longer there. It didn't give the... Uh, and I don't, I don't really know what substantive difference there would have been. I know that uh, apparently after Hitchcock left shooting, there were some other scenes, scenes that were reshot and you know that kind of thing. Yeah, but the, the things that were reshot and, and reshot at Selznick's request and under his supervision were the fire sequences yep. with the models. So, so it wasn't really um, a matter of you know Selznick. Selznick wanted a lot of things, and. Obviously, Hitchcock coming out of Britain, where obviously budgets are tighter, um, you know, all of this is, he, he shot in camera. He knew ahead of time exactly what he wanted to see on the screen. And this was not something that American filmmakers were used to as much, especially in big studios. You know, how many different angles can you shoot? Make sure we have it. If something, if something goes bad at the lab, we have coverage, you know, if, if it's premiered or, or at least it's a, a previewed by an audience and they don't like stuff, we can go back and cut it, um, which obviously Hitchcock didn't care about. Yeah, I think Hitchcock told Truffaut, actually, that uh, Selznick was frustrated with him for that reason. Well, mutually, Hitchcock was frustrated with Selznick. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Even and though after, they remained friendly uh, yeah. right up until the end. Mm. They, um, well, was, they definitely earn, they earned a lot of things off of each other. I mean, obviously... They had respect Hitch for each other, that's right. Because sure. Hitch Hitchcock... This ex just blossomed Hitchcock in the world of filmmaking. I mean, he was a little English filmmaker who made these nice little, you know, mysteries. He definitely blossomed when he came here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, plus they both they both walked out with an Oscar, basically, for it. Well, he, no, he, he, Hitchcock he, he didn't, didn't get one yeah, personally, no, but he, once again, best pictures are, even though it's given to the producer, it is also attributed to the writers, to the directors, to mm -hmm. the cinematographers, and to the music. Speaking of subjective camera work, now, I think that Rebecca is probably one of Hitchcock's most expressionistic films, like overtly expressionistic, because, of course, he, he studied with the German expressionists. But the way in which uh, Manderly acts as a kind of external um, manifestation of Rebecca's spirit... The well, way the way it acts to diminish the heroine, you know, with the high door handles and the huge spaces. Well, yeah, the uh, I mean, the the, the Manderley is a character in the film, and uh, not only does it it's supposed to have the spirit of Rebecca, 
but also it's filmed away. It's it's uh, it's a it's a masterpiece of set design. It was art. It was a, it got uh, an Oscar nomination. It had an Oscar. Yeah, the art director was nominated. Yeah, yeah, and so um, just the massive size of Manderley, and you see it, and because the point of view work is is pretty carefully done, we see it. We're made to feel what it was like for her to be in that place. Yes. Uh, didn't go overboard with low angle shots and stuff like that. Didn't, didn't I didn't notice any of that. But things like water shimmering down her back, you know, yeah. that's that's all. Yeah, but I, you know, as far you know, when you talk about expressionism, there's lots of different ways of you know, lots of it's a it's a very general term. I mean, that's why German. If you say German expressionism, it's a very specific German term. expression. Well. That's, that it's was not his biggest influence. But, but I, no, I don't think this is much, you know, I, I don't think this is much German expressionism as, for instance, uh, you know, uh, Frankenstein, uh, which was much more German expressionism. This one is much more Gothic dark. And, and there, yeah. is a, there, is a, there is a history of Gothic. You know, it's the, it's the uh, haunted old house, uh, the... the, the Agatha Christie, uh, Ten Little Indians. It's it's how the manor, the mansion, whatever affects the life within it. And this was, you know, Wuthering Heights the year before. Um, one of the reasons why that book was actually written was that the, the Bronte sister had actually seen a huge mansion and based it around that mansion. And so that it was literally the location that, that triggered Wuthering Heights. And I'm sure as... You may have mentioned um, it's possible that Daphne de Maurier, who was a British lady living in a huge home like this, she lived in a similar home, I think, in Cornwall. Right. So that that her knowledge of these homes and these places had a large effect um, on her. Whereas I think perhaps the more telling thing about who is Rebecca is the ocean, in that. The opening shot is a man standing, staring down at the ocean. No, stop! What the devil are you shouting about? Who are you? What are you staring at? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to stare, but I... I only thought... Oh, you did it. You, well, what are you doing here? I was only walking. Well, get on with your walking. Don't hang about here screaming. Yeah, the opening shot establishes the three-way relationship uh, between them with the But oceans. we don't know that yet. That's we don't know nice. that yet. That's what yes. I like about the way Hitchcock handles information there. And again, the other thing that's Hitchcockian thing, that we don't know how to read the scene ourselves, just as Joan Fontaine doesn't know how to read the scene. And, uh, and misreads it. And, as, as, yeah, we're, at, we're, as we do. We're supposed to misread it. We're just, the, the film is set for us to, to take the wrong impression of something. It's the kind of scene you only really understand on second viewing. Well, you know, but you also, it comes to you later in the film. It's explained as to what it was. Because he actually, he actually, you know, the winter actually turns to Joan Fontaine, who has no name in the story. Um, or in the book. Or in the book. Um, and explains what happened on that cliff. Within the story, at which point we go with a lot. Since we're following the Joan Fontaine character, she is our she is our as point of view of the film, as as David pointed out, uh, she is our point of view, and we learn we yeah. learn along with her the revelations that we have been tricked, like she was tricked 
uh, earlier in the film, which is one of the great elements of suspense. It's, it is, it's a beautifully uh, um, crafted uh, screenplay. And of course, Hitchcock was a master. Um, you know, we talk about things being made for audience. Hitchcock, his folk, when he talks about audience and all flight, he talks about what is the information the audience has at any given point in time. What does he want them to think? And he, he uh, that's why he has one of those famous, you know, this McGuffick, the, the, the sort of misleading thing that we think, you know, like in Psycho, the money, things, the film's not about the money at all. But we somehow, you know, when's she going to get found out about the money and all that kind of stuff? Mm-hmm. And uh, these are crimes of passion, not of money, that kind of thing. And uh, as the shrink says at the end. But uh, in this case, like, for example, all the way through the film, we don't disbelieve uh, that the, whatever mood uh, Maxim de Winter, the Laurence Olivier character, has, it's not because he was, he'll always be haunted by the love of his wife. He'll never get over it. And we don't find out until the last half hour of the film that he hated his wife. Yes. And we don't know that. And neither does uh, the Joan Fontaine character. So, well, that kind of revelation of thing, it becomes, that whole scene is so effective. It's, it's a dramatic scene, unlike most of many of the scenes that Hitchcock would do later on. They're just like, wow, um, we and her learn the same thing at the same time. Whenever you touched me, I, I knew you were comparing me with Rebecca. Whenever you looked at me or spoke to me or walked with me in the garden, I knew you were thinking, this I did with Rebecca and this and this. Oh, it's true, isn't it? You thought I loved Rebecca? You thought that? I hated her. And he makes it in... He makes us totally change because suddenly it's an incredibly romantic scene. Yes. The, the revelation is like, wow. This we is, want them to hug. Absolutely. This is that absolute moment when you realize that all everything that she and, she and the audience has gone through, they did to themselves. We tortured ourselves during the, this whole process. You know, that we mistaking what we saw, believed the wrong thing. We're terrified that certain things would happen. We're scared for the for the leading lady, and, and but that's what suspense is, and that's what he masters so well. He suspends information, right? Uh, that, that's why I really wish that Selznick had kept the book's original premise that he kills well, we, his we wife. We talked about uh, uh, the original. The original thing was that he actually did murder. His he wife. murdered his wife. Yes, that's what I'm saying. I wish Selznick had kept that. But, but here's because my question. Because then the irony of him eliciting sympathy from us for him would have been all the more potent. Yeah, but he, he's not the main character, and I think that's the point that the, yeah. that, the, that the writers are making, is that he's not the main character. She is. And whether it, if he had murdered her, which, which Hitchcock will get to actually create again in Suspicion... <laughs> Where it does seem that way. With John Fontaine again. Right, yes. with John Fontaine. It's almost like, hey, guess what? We didn't do it in this movie. Let's do it in this one. But, the um, way the story- but, I, but, but had De Winter actually murdered his wife, um, he still did a lot of illegal things. Mm. Um, and there's still a question of how moral he was in doing them. Um, I, I, don't, I think that had he murdered her, um, there would have been no enjoyment for Joan Fontaine's character growing and coming of age, unless she were to leave him. 
I think it, well, I, I, I don't know if I would use the word enjoyment. I think the irony would have been more striking in much the same way that when Hitchcock makes us sympathize with Norman Bates when he's cleaning up the crime scene and trying to sink his car, you know, making us complicit with the wrongdoer. Well, but that that's a different thing because this is a romance. That wasn't. That's a horror movie. And there, there so is what? a difference. There, there's a, you know, absolutely you can, it, it's no problem if you want, to, if De Winter were to murder his wife and then survive and get through it and the whole thing, that's a whole different movie. And, and I think that may have been. But he actually may, does that though, that that is part of the structure. He does make us sympathize with uh, De Winter at that point and his wife because we want them to get away with it. Well, but well, that's uh, it's interesting saying that Hitchcock doesn't always do that. Go back to his first sound film. Um, what, what's the name of the thing? Uh, Blackmail. Hmm. The girlfriend, Annie Andre, kills the guy who comes on to her, Sarah Richard. And her boyfriend who's on the case to solve who killed, uh, who killed Sarah Richard uh, is a cop. And so the kind of thing you're alluding to is, is worked out very well in Blackmail. But it's still here in a, in a certain way. But he doesn't. He, Hitchcock doesn't do that well with romantic kinds of movies. But in Blackmail, the boyfriend does discover that his girlfriend is the murderer, and then when somebody else gets caught and sort of like um, somehow she gets she goes in to confess that she had done it. She can't live with this, and all kinds of expressionist devices are in that film, and she goes in to confess. And somehow or another, through a deus ex machina device, uh, she gets free. But she and the boyfriend leave. On the one hand, emotionally, we as members of the audience, like, are we happy for them? Well, no, they're not going to live every after. After she knows she's killed this guy, and he knows she did it. And, and at the end of the thing, the very last shot in the film, so many uh, things in Hitchcock are ironic last shots. You have a, a picture of a clown that the dead painter has uh, painted coming and filling the frame, sort of pointing a finger and laughing. And that's the end of the film. That's irony. Mm. Here, you don't really... But Hitchcock doesn't seem invested in the... Uh, it happens. There is a final clutch, but he doesn't seem to be invested in, in that kind of romantic happy ending. Well, but, I mean, once again, remember that this is also, for him, comes after Jamaica Inn, where the girl and the hero ride off on a horse at the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. together and they're happy you know that one absolutely after yeah and there's there's no irony whatsoever and and once again this is he's interpreting Daphne de Maurier and there is this is a recent book this is not an ancient thing he hasn't gone that far off of it and I think he is somewhat playing to keep what she put there well and that was certainly Selznick's desire hmm. he really I mean after all it's a bestseller and when you make a movie on this scale, uh, with a producer like Selznick, you know, like the Lord of the Rings stuff, you can't alienate your fan base uh, by uh, by by changing too much of the story. Right. Oh God, it's not like the book. It's not exactly what the people who are going to flock to see this film uh, uh, want to have. So there's no question about it that uh, because of the the budget, you know, Selznick's whatever it is, and wanting to be able to please the fan base uh, for the bestseller, and he couldn't deviate that far. And don't forget, even with the ending, we have to be sort of uh, 
we're happy that Maxim de Winter is not as evil as he would have felt been if he had actually uh, been the murderer. I mean, I agree with you in theory in terms of something I would have liked. Uh, he was in the book, though. I know, but you know, but I think the change partly was because the production code. Production code. But the other thing, I just think that it's a it's a way that um, even though um, I think. See, it was years later. Where was it? The first time I remembered an American film, a guy who committed a crime getting away with it. I think it was the Thomas Crown Affair. Mm. And uh, uh, in some ways, however ironic we might see it in terms of happy endings or how much we believe they're just tacked on, we sort of cheer the fact that Steve McQueen gets away with it. Well, I, I was also going to mention one other thing is that with both Wuthering Heights and with this, critics actually were touting how much better that how but that the, the screenplays were almost better than reading the books i read a couple of um, uh, reviews the book they said the book was better than the film uh, the movie was better than the yeah, film yeah that 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 you know the books were slower they you know they 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 strung out stuff and they obviously seemed seemed like fiction where being sped up heightened um and, and i don't you know for me if i would like you, what would I do? What would I have done different, or would like to have seen differently? I'm always shocked that they didn't end the film with a fight between John Fontaine and Mrs. Danvers with the burning around them. <laughs> okay. See, I, I still, you know, I, I, I don't understand why they didn't do that. Although, once again, that's a thriller and not a suspense film. You know, that's a thrill Or a scene. psychological drama, yeah. Right, but once again, as far as the psychological drama, that yes, that would have been cool too. That but you the, could have made it work, but I don't think it was necessary. Well, you know, the, you know I would have loved it, but... Although I have it, to admit, JP, the image of uh, Mrs. Danvers wandering around out of her mind in the fire... Uh, yeah, I, I got a kick out of this. Oh, look over there, and there in the in the whatever the wing is, the West Wing or whatever. Uh, right there, she is wandering around. This crazy lady has already totally lost it. Yeah, no, I I still would have had. It still would have been that. It's just that moment when the fire is in the building, everybody's escaping, and Mrs. Danvers is trying to drag this girl so she will die as well. You know, it's just that. But you know, obviously, the 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 story really is Mrs. Danvers who is. To me, the second most important character in the film. The evil mother goes up in flames. Maxie! Thank heaven you come back to me. Are you all right, Tommy? Oh, yes, sir. Are you all right? Mrs. Danvers, she's gone mad. She said she'd rather destroy man to live and see us happy here. Look! The West Wing! And it's the harbinger of, I can't remember an evil mother in, in a pre-American Hitchcock, uh, Hitchcock film. Uh, I might think about that a little bit more. But certainly, it's um, Jessica Tandy's mother in The Birds, the, the, the dead mother in Psycho. The mother in Marnie. Well, you actually have oh, two right. mothers here because you have Mrs. Denver's and then you also have Miss Van Hopper at the beginning. Well, except was, I, I don't think you can call, personally, I don't think either one's really a mother figure. And that Miss Van that Hopper Mrs. kind of is. Well, the only Mrs. Van Hopper is more a symbol. I mean, because once again, we, you know, we need to talk about however does this little poor girl end up with this elegant, rich man? You know, because, you know, 
is this a love story? This is a love story. You know, so we have a guy who we believe is about to commit suicide who um, ends up marrying this uh, non-noble, non-wealthy, uh, you know, orphaned girl, right? And I think, you know, this, this, the, Mrs. Van Hopper is there for a very, very specific reason. And, it, and it's mm -hmm. part of the, the whole business of making the John Fontaine character the shy, scared little girl that she is, in that here she is suddenly out in the world, her father just died, so you know she's she's parentless, um, and she ends up in what this is Monte Carlo, yeah, you're in Monte Carlo, um, with this woman who supposedly is a high society matron, right? And this is the most obnoxious person <laughs> you could possibly imagine. She is annoying and horrible, and if this is what society is like. I'm not surprised that the John Fontaine character is terrified of society and not wanting to really get into it. I'll never come to Monte Carlo out of season again. Not a single well-known personality in the hotel. Stone cold. Waiter, garçon, call him. Tell him to get me some... Why, it's Max de Winter. How do you do? Another way of interpreting the film is happy ever into any. Uh, obviously, Maxim de Winter did not like that kind of life, and his wife was the embodiment of that kind of life. But we don't know so, that yet. See, that's the, no, that's that's the, the great twist. thing about it. Right. Yes, but see, when 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 she's introduced, she's a representative for our main character, John, yep. as to how horrible it must be to live in those you know rich English homes. You know, and the, is everybody like this? <sighs> Suggestion didn't seem to go at all well. Sorry. Oh, but you don't understand. It's that I. Well, I'm not the sort of person men marry. I don't know what you mean. Well, I don't belong in your sort of world, for, for one thing. Well, what is my sort of world? Oh, well, mandolin. You know what I mean. Well, I'm the best judge of whether you belong there or not. Of course, if you don't love me, that's a different thing. And then. Well, she... It may be a sub theme here. <laughs> well, no, but it also gives us the contrast between. Max de Winter, who we assume is this horribly moody guy who had, who loves this, you know, rich, rich, mannerly life and is horrified that he's lost his, you know, perfect wife. Yeah. So it, this, this world is scary to her. Um, and, that, and because of the, the production design, the house is so big and the number of servants is so large, the whole way it's visually designed it is. It clearly would be intimidating. Right. And again, the point of view work uh, helps out that an awful lot without having to resort to low angle shots. I mean, apart from the expressions, no question that uh, the, the film did get an Oscar for best cinematography. The use of light and shadow in the film is 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 is, is, mm. is incredible, and really creates an atmosphere. Uh, it's not wild angles the way one often associates with uh, expressionist I, films yeah and i think it's a it's uh the atmosphere from the book is very well captured to me i think also this film is a very good example of the fantastique in that the supernatural elements of the story are never made overt it's always hinted at it's always you're always kind of on the edge of the supernatural but it's never it you know, it never becomes concrete. Well, it would be easy to call this a ghost story. 
it's not a ghost story. I know, but, but it would the, be easy to think of it in that in those terms. That's why it's 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 fantastique, though, because right. it's, it's well. What is interesting about the way you, um, it's a question of emphasis, because clearly what Selznick wanted, and Hitchcock talked him out of it, uh, when you had the the the, the Manderley burning up at the end. And he wanted the uh, smoke to form in a big R. Oh, yes. And yes. I that would have that. been more of the supernatural. <laughs> the way this ends, uh, and apparently this was Hitchcock's doing, uh, we yes. just, the R on the, um, on the bed. On uh, the bed. Yeah, the, that, Mrs. Danvers actually handmade. Yes. Yeah. And that, to me, is, you know, it, 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 you know, there's no question about her spirit does haunt the place, but I don't think that's good. Hitchcock's never really made a ghost story. No, no, Hitchcock keeps it deliberately ambiguous. Well, he's never made a ghost story. I mean, the the ghost story that we think is a ghost story, which is Vertigo, is not a ghost story. Good example. And Psycho. Yep. And Psycho. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, there are uh, ways in which uh, these dead people continue to uh, uh, haunt the living uh, uh, oh, that's good. Yeah. but in a in a in a very ambiguous way there's never really any haunting uh, goes on which which is what I love about it although oddly he did make a famously fantastic film which was also written by Daphne du Maurier the birds which yeah. is a science fiction film you think that's a fantastic film oh God it comes yes. close to it how so? That's that, that that all the birds get together to kill human beings. Now, come on, that talk talk about fantastic. That is definitely fantastic. And the whole kind of way, okay. sort of like with Mother now. Uh, the, uh, there's all kinds of ways of interpreting the birds. There's that great scene in the restaurant slash diner where everybody has a theory of why the birds are doing this, and and of course none of them are right. And of course, what's so great about Hitchcock that uh, audiences want to know. They don't like ambiguity and. <laughs> You never quite know why the birds uh, are doing it. Speaking of um, speaking of vertigo, I've always found the one Achilles heel of vertigo is the ending. It it just doesn't convince me, and I can't say I was very convinced. From a plot by, standpoint, or from a, a, a cinematographic standpoint? Um, from the character standpoint, I'm not convinced by. Well, first of all, I wasn't convinced by how she dies at the end. The nun scared her, and she fell. I mean, okay. But then I also wasn't convinced by Jimmy Stewart's reaction. There was... Uh, I'm not sure what that was, even. That's uh, what I love about the film. Um, <laughs> really? Uh, <laughs> uh, it's so abrupt. What? Because uh, you don't get a chance even to measure his reaction. Well, I'm not sure what his reaction is. I well, mean, that, I mean that, he yeah, was in love with her. That, that Exactly, and you don't know. All of a sudden, oh, yeah... Wham! There's this vacuum. Hmm. Yeah, that that just. I, I love that. Okay. But in in Rebecca, it's the abruptness in your because normally you would have a little bit more after that. And it's a, just a day wham. Wall. Yeah. It it's just an end, and since as we know, you know, after all these years of analyzing Hitchcock, there is a kind of a a, a subjective way he identifies with the Jimmy Stewart character. Oh, sure. Uh, that uh, this loss is a sudden and just abrupt and, you know, um, I mean, every other film of its own has like a good tagline at the end, even if just facetious and funny. Wow. Well, well actually, I would say that, that even at this point, he hasn't fully developed that. At Rebecca, he's still telling stories and, and there are elements of himself into it, but not really yet. 
It's like, okay, let's go to a bad film, Paradigm Case, much more. Which I haven't gone to in 60 years. Right, but it's much more uh, this fetishistic, uh, this is a little bit, bit about me, the director of how I deal with women, and that there are, he's developing as he probably gets to be his own producer. And he gets more power over, and also more confidence on telling stories that have more edge, even than this one. Because this one, this one absolutely, the Danvers character is an edgy character that great possibly never been seen before. Because she's, you know, she it's verging on a, 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 a what a homosexual obsession with with her mistress. And they had to go, obviously, production code, that was an utter taboo. But you, there's no way of uh, not reading Mrs. Danvers' obsession as partly homosexual. I keep her underwear on this side. They were made specially for her by the nuns in the convent of St. Clair. I always used to wait up for her, no matter how late. Sometimes she and Mr. DeWinter didn't come home until dawn. While she was undressing, she'd tell me about the party she'd been to. She knew everyone that mattered. Everyone loved her. When she'd finished her bath, she'd go into the bedroom and go over to the dressing table. Uh, that, that is a fascinating, it's an unnerving part of the film. You know, it's sort of interesting the way that scene when the Joan Fontaine character dares to go to the room. To the morning room, she, yeah. And she shows it. And rather than Mrs. Danvers completely, uh, I just, I love the way these things are written uh, com- uh, and directed. Rather than simply saying, what are you doing in here? You all, you, you got to No, it goes in two ways. She's able to communicate even more. You're not the first Mrs. DeWinter. Uh, you're not Rebecca. And certainly the Joan Fontaine character you know, sees how beautiful the room is, but it's been forbidden to her. On the other hand, it's a vehicle for us to see the Mrs. Danforth's utter obsession, almost homoerotic obsession with um, uh, with Rebecca. It's a scene, again, it's a great scene because it doesn't just take one note. It takes several, two or three notes at the same time. It's a really well-done scene. And again, there's an awful lot of this film uh, that um, I think works better as film than it would on the printed page. Uh, yeah, like the whole thing with the dog, the dog. you mentioned to me. Yeah, Jasper. Jasper. J- J- Jasper being... It's a visual device, really. It is. Well, but it's also... Uh, the house has a personality. And mm-hmm. as, you know, with the, the house, Rebecca's cottage, the ocean, all of, the, you know, all of these are Rebecca, especially especially the wing of the of the house, which is Rebecca's wing. And protected by Mrs. Danvers. And that Jasper is, besides being one of the most interesting characters for me in the film, <laughs> and Jasper is just a dog. He does go from, when we first see him, he sits outside Rebecca's bedroom, the dead Rebecca's bedroom, as if he's longing for the return of his dead mistress. Uh, when Joan Fontaine's character enters the morning room, Jasper's there to look at her like, why are you in this room? Um, when they take Jasper for a walk, Jasper, instead of walking with 
you know, Max de Winter and his new wife, Jasper, runs off to go to the doorway of, of his old mistress's home. So, in fact, much like Mrs. Danvers, Jasper is, you know, still a, an object of Rebecca being there. But the interesting thing is that Jasper, <laughs> unlike other characters, you know, most characters, really grows to love the John Fontaine character. And then eventually is part of the reason why Mrs. Danvers goes mad when Mrs. Danvers walks into the, um, I guess it's the, it's the den that they walk into. And, right. the, and Jasper's sitting happily in John Fontaine's lap and almost looking angrily at Mrs. Danvers. And Mrs. Danvers knows she's lost everything at this point. Mm. You know, the, the, the human characters really have a, much of a character arc in the film. I'm being facetious, but, uh, <laughs> but the dog does more than any of the characters. Oh, absolutely. He has actually, he has the more um, visible arc, whereas John Fontaine's character goes through a rather sudden change, which is important to the story that it is a sudden change for her. You mean when she says, I miss Mrs. DeWinter now? No, it's, actually, it's before that. The, obviously, the, the big turning scene, and probably the best, for me, the best scene in the whole movie is the is Max revealing the truth about Rebecca. Mm. I mean, that's my favorite scene. She was lying on the divan, a large tray of cigarette stubs beside her. She looked ill, queer. Suddenly she got up, started to walk toward me. When I have a child, she said, neither you nor anyone else could ever prove it wasn't yours. You'd like to have an heir, wouldn't you, Max, for your precious Mandalay? And she started to laugh. How funny. How supremely, wonderfully funny. I'll be the perfect mother, just as I've been the perfect wife. No one will ever know. It ought to give you the thrill of your life, Max, to watch my son grow bigger day by day, and to know that when you die, Mandalay will be his. And it's beautifully it's shot. beautifully done, yes. It's so well done, so well set up. Um... But it is absolutely the moment where all of the suspense that we have been tricked into from, from the first moment on the cliff all the way along, it, since we're Joan Fontaine's companion on this journey, she has been tricked into being terrified of a whole series of things that aren't true. Which is one, I mean, and it's wonderful, but that's that scene is so powerful in that it changes our view of Max and completely it relieves the Joan Fontaine character of all the burden that she's been basically torturing herself with. This well, that like, scene happens after she says, I'm Mrs. DeWinter now. I'm, the one yeah, I'm, I'm talking about is, is when she's uh, uh, sitting in, the, um, in Rebecca's office and she sees all her stationery and all that stuff. And Dude, she does that basically, come before? That's an interesting question because I, I don't I think remember. That's I thought it came after. Uh, but it maybe. couldn't. No, no I, I'm yes. pretty sure it happened before. Okay. And it we're not dealing here with um, gaslight where Mrs. Danvers is deliberately planting things to, uh, you know, that are the, the Rebecca's. Uh, but they're there. Wait, wait. Like the costume? Okay, the yeah. Oh, yeah, the Okay, fine. Wait we, a second. Yeah, you're right. Totally Danvers right. Danvers is definitely gaslighting. You're totally right. Okay, that's great. Every yeah. time, you know, when 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 she talks about the morning room, this is Mrs. De Winter's room. Yes. <laughs> She's not talking about 
the new Mrs. De Winters. Oh, it's, she's yeah. acting like the old Mrs. De Winters is sort of still here. She does that all the time. I, I <laughs> she is a gaslight. Incidentally, uh, in terms of Mrs. Danvers, she's great. Um, and uh, but apparently, uh, the American Film Institute did a poll of the hundred greatest villains in film history. Mrs. Danvers ranked number thirty-one in the history of film as one of the worst, as, as one of the worst villains in uh, in film history. She she's a wonderful villain. She's terrific, and uh, she looks like uh, she looks like uh, Gloria Holden in Dracula's Daughter. You're right. She has that yeah. same kind of hypnotic. Well, know. not only that, they they actually give her vampire lighting, the the lighting oh, from okay. underneath that comes up. Yeah, you know that just draws her features into sort of a more evil look. That's and true. in the scene in the morning room, uh, not the morning room, but the whatever the, the main room is, uh, a little bit of angle comes in there in terms of the way she's filmed, in terms of the way she comes up close and, you know, jump, that kind of thing. A right. little bit. Not much, but just enough. Yeah. And um, beautifully done. And the film really is, yeah, actually been sort of in a, maybe the half dozenth time I'd seen the film. But in terms of our talking, I really do think the film is visually strong. Uh, and it is, you know, we're talking about the dog and other things in the film. Probably no wonder people did say that it might be better than the book. Yeah. Uh, oh. That could easily be. It's, it's cleverly done. It's, it's, it's much more condensed than the book. Well, that's usually the case. Well, but once again, it, 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 in many ways, when you use words to describe you know, to, to do that psychological thing of, uh, you know, we're, we're close in looking at a woman thinking, and then we expand out to realize this is why she's thinking that or feeling that. Yeah, it, it, it's much more powerful in a film. And, and once again, this is, there has always been the talk that this is a Selznick movie and not a Hitchcock, but the Hitchcock touches are always there. It gets you know? clearer to me uh, the more we talk about the film. But again, again, you know, the cinematography is in the air. Uh, mentioned before that the opening shot of the film, the tracking shot to the to the mansion, which is in ruins at the beginning of the film, of course, is very similar to the film that came out a year later, Citizen Kane, mm-hmm. uh, and the the rosebud uh, versus the R shot on the on the bed. Uh, <laughs> it's very similar with the fire and the flames and all that kind of stuff. And one of the things that Again, I don't think I don't know how I would have read in the book when he brings uh, the new Mrs. De Winter home and they have their first meal together because it's already been established visually. Uh, they've had fun breakfast together on the on the Riviera, uh, you know, very impromptu mm. kinds of things. And then you get to, and you have this elongated table, which is sort of you know who knows whether there's a direct influence or not. But we can say, wait a minute, this is a formally distant relationship, and you can see the growing inability of the two of them to communicate the way they communicated when they were on the French Riviera. Uh, and all, and you also, you think that's where 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 Wells got his? Have idea no idea, but it. it's I, there. It could well be why Wells and and once again the the, the whole like Hollywood the, crew the, of, of the jigsaw puzzle scene where right. they can't hear each other. But it's very possible. But once again, that the, they're filmed, they're filmed similar because. In the Hitchcock, in Rebecca, it's a matter of not showing the distance between the two of them, but showing her distance because it starts on her, yes. which a lot of these shots move. And, and it starts on her, and we pull back as she sits down. She's being, you know, the, she's being led to her seat by you know, the butler or whatever. And she sits down, and the camera pulls back. We see her meal, and then we see these beautiful flowers. And then we finally pull back to the fact that 
she's sitting a good, what, 10 feet away from right. Max de Winter. And that this would make her feel small and lonely here. And she is actually small and lonely because now in the, in the frame, she's been moved into the background. Um, yeah. And, you know, this is, what, as I was saying, so many of the shots are Hitchcockian. Well, she's made to look small and lonely throughout the film because he keeps pulling the camera away from her at the ends of scenes. Right, or having her walk away. Or the, having her walk away. The whole, the, the whole scene where the butler basically in the den tells her that normally the Mrs. De Winter would not be writing in here. She would write in her morning room. Mm. And then we follow Rebecca out into the gigantic hall. You know, which is always, you know, towering over her. And she and she doesn't know where to go. And finally the butler points out to a tiny little, you know, dark spot in the back in the distance and says that's the morning room. And we see Joan Fontaine gets smaller and smaller and smaller as she goes there. And it seems like and it's I think endlessly... the butler is still standing there, right? Right. And the and but the trick is it seems up. like she's going to the yeah. back ends of the earth to this tiny little hole. Uh, which turns out to be even scarier <laughs> when we go inside of it, because it has actually got the ghost of Rebecca all over the place. I beg pardon, madam. I'm afraid the fire is not usually lit in the library until the afternoon, but you'll find one in the morning room. Of course, if you wish this fire lit now, madam. Oh, no, Fred, I wouldn't dream. Uh, Mrs. De Winter, <clears throat> I mean, the late Mrs. De Winter always did her correspondence and telephoning in the morning room. After breakfast. Thank you, Fritz. Is anything wrong, madam? Oh, uh, no. Uh, which way is the morning room? Oh, it's that door there, on the left. Oh, yes, thank you. Well, to go back to the, um, to the ending of this film for a second, the reason it didn't convince me was because... Um, Frankly, their whole relationship didn't uh, uh, convince me that much. Uh, first of all, I, he treats her like a child. She's not his equal in any possible way. Yeah, I, no, I, I, see, I think once again that this is part of the, the, the Machiavellian machinations of the story in that we're set up at the beginning to believe that there's this moody, unhappy, unpleasant man who's about to commit suicide because the love of his life just died. And we have this poor little girl who's an orphan who's suddenly totally lost in the world and hanging out with what is supposed to be a society woman, Mrs. Van Hopper, who is just the most obnoxious example of high society or who's another nouveau evil riche mother, high society. Right, but... And, and she, you know, so we have these two characters that we, two characters, Van Hopper and, and Maxim, Lawrence Olivia's character, and, and that this is what she sees the world as. Now, what does he see her as? We don't know. Now, and this has to do yeah. with the fact that we've been tricked, right? We have been tricked as to who is the girl and the trick. Part of it, we do not understand why he's asking her. He ends up learning a lot about her, all right, before he asks her to marry him. He tests her. Yep. Um, and now we don't know why. And that's, once again, you have to really remember that we're not learning who they really are when we start. 
So when you go back and now you look at it, why is he doing what he does? Why does he treat her the way he does? Why does he keep her at arm's length? Why does he treat her like, I can't fall in love with you? Because he's terrified of what we know later is he doesn't want to make the same damn mistake that he did before. And that's why one of the things I like about the uh, you know, maybe unintentional irony, we don't see a warm romantic scene between the two of them till maybe the very end. I don't buy it. I agree with Dima on that one. Yeah, I don't well, no, it. but uh, we do see it. We do see it in the, in the, home, the home movies. Film, home movies, oh, and home absolutely. That's what, and that's the kind of yes. thing that could not have, can't imagine that having been in the book. Uh, uh, we see the two of them. Uh, we just see it. We're not right. told about it. We see them. Oh my God, this is having fun. They're a playful couple. All right. And when um, the, uh, and of course, what I love about that particular scene where we see the movies, it's also a scene where they're, they get into a, a, a fight in the middle of the scene. I mean, I mean, this is like, but it all, there's but a lot of texture to this film. But it also has to, I mean, once again, remember that the entire opening of the film, except for the title sequence, bright, light, airy, yeah. we're on the Riviera, it's gorgeous, it's sunny, right? And this is where they fall in love. And that, the, the home movies thing is totally bright. It, totally exactly, bright. and the train. Like anything else in the film, but it, it's part of the fact that when De Winter goes back to his home, something haunts him again. Right, and there we get to our supernatural thing. Perhaps. Right, and and so once again, we're you know we're the, they're playing with us, the audience, because the fact is, yes, they were truly in love. They were happy. It's the house that is going to try to rip them apart, or the or whatever the memory of Rebecca really is. Because remember, once again, we all have a, the wrong impression. Well, that's an interesting idea. Although I'm wondering if if the ho if the home uh, movie thing is one of those kind of Hitchcockian ironies that love Probably. and romance only happen in movies, but not in real life. I don't think so. Because I, you know, wait a second. If I remember correctly, even though he they ran out without the wedding thing, he catches it. And what did he do at, at, right after that? He forgets his marriage certificate. No, no, no. That's, he gets the marriage certificate. Then what does he do? He catches it in his hat. Kind yeah, of, so kind then of what does he do? No, no, but then what does he do? He buys he do? her flowers. Yeah, there we go. Now we're so, getting back into the truth of it. Is, but flowers are part of Rebecca, though, aren't they? Well, no, but no, no. They're not part they're of Rebecca. Not, part of not established. I mean, I think you're Ever. right, but it's not, not really something that's emphasized in the script. Well, it's not established well, on the other yet hand, when I see point. the scene with the flowers, is he feeling guilty? He's trying to do something to make up for it? Really? I just thought he, you know, once again, for me, running out, they're so happy they're getting married that they forgot the wedding license. That has no problem. I don't think of that as anything negative in any way. Oh, to me, that, and that, that represents his whole attitude towards everything. I, I know, but her. It, no, no, Hitchcock's. But no, but it represents the, it represents he, what he, we think he's thinking at the time, and that's what I think is is the twist. That's what I see at the end of uh, uh, Thirty Nine Steps when Madeline Carroll and Robert Jonah are together, and he's still he's still got his handcuffs on, and it, it's it, it's fun. But then when you get to North by Northwest. And Cary Grant holds uh, uh, even where he's saying up into the upper bunk or whatever it is. Uh, and of course, in a cut to a train going through a tunnel. That's Hitchcock. <laughs> yeah, that's Hitchcock. And, and well, uh, that's yes. He's not, he's not talking about serious romance. He's having fun. Yeah, and, but, uh, but well, it's also but that, Max's, that one got to be a horny girl because basically, wasn't it even Marie Saint's character who dra who pulls him in? Yep. You know, to have sex with him. But Maxim is consistent, though. This isn't just what we think he thinks at the time. I mean, his behavior is really consistent throughout. It's as though 
there's something in him that just won't let him. Uh, yeah, see, I, I disagree. I, if I got married and no. I'm so excited about being married and taking off, and we're gonna have, we're going on our honeymoon, I would forget the wedding. Yeah, but this isn't real too. life. This is a no, no, remember, film. This no, is, no, but also remember, everything means something. Which is here. which is more important, a piece of paper or love? And I think this is about the fact that he's in love with her. And the piece of paper becomes secondary, and it hasn't. I don't think it's as symbolic as you think it is. You're, I really uh, don't. You're more more of a romantic than I am. I have a tendency to maybe see irony where it isn't. But uh, the uh, and but, I think Hitchcock did too. I don't think yeah, he, he was a romantic yeah. either. And uh, on the other hand, but no question about it. I think you know, as was said, you know, at one point uh, when Hitchcock interviewed Truffaut, and he said, "Don't talk about Rebecca." He said, "It's not a Hitchcock film. It's a uh, uh, Selznick film." <laughs> I think our discussion reveals this is very much a Hitchcock film. And, yes. Uh, uh, yeah, not that it's not a Selznick film. Uh, and there are certain kinds of ways that... Uh, now, um, in terms of Hitchcock after this, did form his own production company. Uh, I think he finished the... He had to finish his deal with... Um, was it Mr. Smith? Mrs. Smith? No, he, had, no the, the, he, he was under contract to Selznick for a number of films. And right, at so, the end of those, absolutely, he started his own company. And I thought he did it while this was still going on. Uh, he may have, but I don't know if he produced. I, I don't you know, know that either. So that's something to be Because technically, he may have, you know, it's like the Paradigm case, he had to make for Selznick. He had no choice. It was the last obligation he had to Selznick. And the rest of the Selznick bought off to loan outs then, huh? Right. But apparently, what Hitchcock, there was a change, though, because he did then start to do more. I mean, he was always known for uh, storyboarding everything right. uh, ahead of time. But that uh, because Selznick did come in and reshoot some things, and he's got an uh, in-house editor, that uh, Hitchcock found ways of shooting which would prevent that from happening. Yeah, but I think that was that was earlier. That was that was something he brought from England. Yes, him. but then it, it, it slipped away from him a little bit with uh, this one. He got back to it again. Yeah, but still, in spite of all of that, which is all, all it's a really good film, mm-hmm. and it got enough of Hitchcock in it to be legitimately a Hitchcock film. But I, it also, I think, was part of an evolution to an improved Hitchcock in that he could have gone on doing the English films, but c- coming to the United States, working with that caliber of crew, that caliber of artistic input, Barring, of course, Selznick. <laughs> but the, the, the cinematographers, the art directors, everybody on this film obviously gave huge amounts of artistic help to, to, to make sure that Hitchcock's vision was there. It is, if you compare uh, Jamaica Inn and Rebecca, they have the same type of lighting, the same type of sets and all that. Mm-hmm. Rebecca is just better. It's sharper. It's cleaner. It's that Hollywood gloss that continued and, and we came to expect in, in Hitchcock films. Whereas, you know, 39 Steps and, and Jamaica Inn are wonderfully rough. You know, they're, yeah. they're, they have some edge because, and, you know, and young and There's innocent. There's to be well. said about that too, because the same was true of Polanski. His uh, Polish and British films mm-hmm. had a rough edge to them. And then we, when, we made Chinatown like that's just yeah, no. just pure gloss. And, and there was Robert and, Evans lurking there, and they both for Chinatown and for Rosemary's Baby. Yeah, the thing 
Well, it's very much of a Marxist film. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. <laughs> You've got Selznick versus Hitchcock. Thesis, antithesis. And then we got a nice synthesis here. And uh, right. Uh, so it's a pure illustration of Marxist theory. Okay, but, <laughs> I think. <laughs> but I think. But I. Th I think it was a good thing for Hitchcock. Even though you're you know, right, you can complain about. You know, it's funny. There's so many movies where. What was the other one? One of my favorite British films is uh, Jean Vievre. Oh yeah, with Ted Kendall. Right, which is. One of my favorite comedies of all time. It's a great film. But apparently it was the worst nightmare ever to work on. Everybody hated being on the film. It doesn't show in any way. <laughs> so this film pushed Hitchcock and and pushed, you know, gave him all this extra ability to, to expand his talent. Yep. But it also brought him to the United States where, you know, he 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 blossomed as his own I mean I, I, this is not an auteur if you at this point if you if you think about it right but he became the auteur you know when and when suddenly his personality suddenly truly started coming out in the films it does which it does but you know a lot of people talk about it not being a, a Hitchcock movie and all that but the, the to me there's we I mentioned one before but to me one of the absolutely perfect shots which is hitchcock is my favorite scene which is the scene in rebecca's hut where maxim reveals the truth about rebecca and the joan fontaine character realizes that everything she and us the audience had believed up to this point was wrong and it's this great scene where it ends up well one of them is with the camera as Maxim talks, Hitchcock recreates the scene where Rebecca died. Oh, yeah, the, the without, great panning shot. Right, without ever... She's not there, but the camera shows us where she was, how she fell, what happened, right? And I, Which is great, which is very Hitchcock. And then, as the revelation happens, and suddenly the film turns to a, a, a real romance... And the Joan Fontaine character goes to Laurence Olivier and they embrace Hitchcock again. The phone rings. And there's this beautiful two-shot of them that pans down. And then we have this huge close-up of the phone ringing. Hello, Frank. Hello, Frank. Yes. Who? Colonel Julian? Yes, tell him I, I'll meet him there as soon as I possibly can. What? Well, say, we could talk about that when we're sure about the matter. What's happened? Colonel Julian called. He's the chief constable of the county. He's been asked by the police to go to the mortuary. He wanted to know if I could possibly have made a mistake about that other body. And this is so, you know, this is something that Hitchcock does all the time. He does it in almost every film. My favorite being Notorious and the Keys. 
you know, which is one of the greatest shots in the history of film, let alone, yeah. But then again, he does that, you know, with the phone ringing and dial in for murder. Absolutely. And it's sort of funny, it's sort of the way Hitchcock makes it work. You're totally right about this, because often, you know, I, I've been in several films lately where every now and then, even when we show, showed uh, uh, You Can Count On Me the other night, the phone ringing becomes a way of interrupting the plot. It's almost like Deus Ex Machina. It gets to be more of a contrivance. Mm. But here, oh, I think the way Nicholas Ray does it in uh, in A Lonely Place, it's more integral to the kind of thing. And uh, the uh, and, you're, and the way this is shot is, is wonderful. Uh, and Hitchcock knew what to do with the make it with a moving camera. Mm-hmm. He really did, and uh, uh, and this shows it. Well, and as you say, the subjective camera, yep. which is the the most amazing one in this movie, which is uh, is the presence of what is it, the West Wing? West Wing, yeah, the West Wing, which is hidden off from the world, and uh, and and you're not supposed to approach it, and then. So, it, therefore, it becomes attractive. It becomes a, a guilty thing that she wants to, to break into. And as Joan Fontaine looks at it, we see her, her start to move forward. And as she moves forward, we go to her with this and, and track backwards, watching her as she moves forward and just know that this is, you know, it's impending. Something horrible is going to happen. And then he reverses. And her point of view just moves just right in on the doors, right in on the doorknob, to the point where we're expecting her hand, our hand, to open the door. I mean, it, it, it's great suspense. And it's great because it's one of the great, that is clearly part of the, the original. Of it. Because in, you know, in the tradition of Gothic romance mm-hmm. or Gothic dramas, you have, the, like in Jane Eyre, the crazy ex wife in the upper room, that kind of thing. Exactly. And um, there, it actually is one something, um, I, I hope, Dima, you've seen it. Uh, it's a Vincent Price film, <laughs> Dragonwick, which clearly was a film that was mm. made on the heels of the success of this film. Right. Vincent Price and who else was in the thing? Yeah, it's uh, one of the great, great... Uh, many years. Yeah, another gothic romance. Right. Yeah. And uh, where Vincent Price had not become a caricature just yet. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, there, 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 there was certainly, uh, you know, with Wuthering Heights first, then this one, uh, which they really do stand on a par. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're both great films, and clearly the, that got to be sort of in vogue. But I remember, I remember Gene Tierney and Barry Price and somebody else, I think. Uh, but yeah, you have okay. There's this forbidden room, you know that right. kind of thing. Exactly. And <laughs> you know, yeah, and there's it, a bit it, of Bluebeard in this, isn't there? Yeah, I kind of actually see the Bluebeard that's opening up at the MFA this weekend. I, a uh, new one or which? It's a new Bluebeard. one. Yeah. Huh. Oh. And I don't know. I haven't read much about it. Just. Yeah, because we we showed here the Charlie Chaplin Bluebeard film about a year and a half yes. ago. Yes. Oh, I which was a really weird film. It is really schizophrenic film. The other thing was in talking about you know the 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 whole business of the the sort of the cat and mouse that Hitchcock's playing with us by not giving us the truth and making us take Joan Fontaine's journey because she doesn't know the truth, therefore everything is heightened and amplified and scarier than probably it should have been, was that the question about who is Max de Winter and can he have love and, and all of those questions, I have no problem with the, the romance. I, I, I totally see it in this. And, and part of that being two of my favorite characters, which is Max de Winter's sister is one of the most delightful women you've ever met. 
and her husband. And so this is Gladys Cooper and, and Nigel. And the other thing, too, perfect. from a writing standpoint, and it's typical of Hitchcock, even though this is not a wrong man film, there's, there's an awful lot of ways of certain expectations well, aren't what they are. I mean, the whole way that the that that scene you just talked about works. Because he introduces, oh, my God, you're, you're going to meet my sister, and you know, whatever it is, oh, my God, are you going to be able to get through that? And she's, you know, he, he sets her up to expect it to be a bad encounter, and then we're surprised, as she is surprised, She's not the uh, what she'd been set up to believe. There are touches like that all the way through the film. That, but, it, uh, but, it, but it also tells us something about Max de Winter. He must, this is his sister. This is a delightful woman. He must have grown up in a rather delightful way. I mean, he, she loves him. He may actually be nervous about her, but, but you know... If anything, she's a dotty, <laughs> crazy English rich woman, but she's not. She's she's exactly what we want, and yeah. what what Joan Fontaine would have dreamed that this world could be like. Uh, and yeah, she, but again, both Joan Fontaine, the way he set up the meeting of the sisters, she's going to be coming here. I'm not going to be here. To, uh, mm. you know, I maybe even says to protect you or something like that. There's no problem whatsoever. That's you know, and again. How much of that is from the book, uh, and how much right. of that is a kind of a Hitchcock destroying? He sets us up to expect one thing, and it's not that. Right. So there must have been just elements in the book itself that he, he would that would have it appealed is. to him. Yeah, I think you're right that uh, Maxim appears to be a man who's undergone some kind of trauma in the past, and it's now haunting him, which is uh, which is a typical kind of uh, gothic device. You know, you usually have some kind of a family curse like or something and Jane Eyre. Yeah. From, from the past that haunts the present. Mm -hmm. You know, in this case, it's Rebecca. We don't know what it is yet. We find out. Well, I mean, the whole question being, if it, when you think of Maxim right now, you know, you would have liked him to have murdered the wife and the whole thing. I, I actually would have been more fun. It might have been more fun. Uh, but I think that this allows you to have both a great suspense story and a great romance. Which I think it is. I think it's both. It could, and I think it does. It, the it could still well. be a great romance, though. It still could have been. Yeah, I think you put an, you would have for, had, for the American audience. You put an edge on that that may not have worked at the time, which I think, and they also may have gotten in trouble with the the code. That's because Americans like everything simplified for them. Yeah, well, <laughs> yes and no, but it's really a question. Don't forget, I mean, uh, with all the talk about Harvey, I mean, good, bad, or indifferent in the way he. <laughs> Uh, the Weinsteinized a lot of endings to films. Um, yes. He was right in knowing that what audiences want, as opposed to what makes any sense. You know, uh, that's all right. Mm -hmm. And of course, the uh, how the ambiguity that I would have loved at the end more than you know, and you, you would have liked it, the uh, the ending. But what's going to work with an audience? Oh my God, he was a murderer. There, I mean, I might get really intellectually thrilled out of seeing. Okay. They're going to live happily ever together, knowing full well he murdered his wife. I just think, sort of, the kind of producer. That's the way it is in the book, huh? That's the way it is in the book. Yeah, but for the kind of um, a way that Selznick tried to make films, uh, apart from you know what it counts, oh. he did it because of the production code. On the other hand, I think it's probably for an audience that's not going to think through irony. Uh, well, I mean, Selznick. Kind of well, but remember, it also, once again, in a novel, you can get away with a lot more that you sometimes can't get away with in a movie. That, that the, the short period of time from the revelation that this is a murderer to the end of the movie, it may not have worked. 
for us to let her get to the headset of, I don't care if he's a murderer, I love him. You know, and, and I'm, is that really the I romance Hitchcock, people are looking for? He, he, I think Hitchcock could have made it work because remember, in the end... No, I agree. We, but remember, this we is, learned this is also that a Selznick she, movie. <laughs> but she, uh, yeah, but Selznick was famous for thumbing his nose at the code anyway. Well, no, but I'm he... Just, not the, that famous. The, the way that this... Mm. Selznick? No. Selznick thumbed his nose at the code. He was, Where? Sick, he was sick of the code. Hey, you can be sick of the code, but he stuck to it. Thank you, gentlemen. I, uh, there is a lot to unpack here, obviously, and Criterion's new restoration is absolutely stunning, so I highly recommend it. Uh, so did the audiences in 1940 in the Academy Award when they gave it an Oscar for Best Picture, too. <laughs> Last night... I dreamt I went to Manderley again. It seemed to me I stood by the iron gate leading to the drive, and for a while I could not enter, for the way was barred to me. Then, like all dreamers, I was possessed of a sudden with supernatural powers and passed like a spirit through the barrier before me. The drive wound away in front of me, twisting and turning as it had always done. But as I advanced, I was aware that a change had come upon it. Nature had come into her own again, and little by little had encroached upon the drive with long, tenacious fingers. On and on wound the poor thread that had once been our drive. And finally, there was Mandalay. Mandalay, secretive and silent. Time could not mar the perfect symmetry of those walls. Moonlight can play odd tricks upon the fancy, and suddenly it seemed to me that light came from the windows. And then a cloud came upon the moon and hovered an instant like a dark hand before a face. The illusion went with it. I looked upon a desolate shell with no whisper of the past about its staring walls. Mm -hmm. 